0: Welcome to the podcast provided by First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I am Dr. Chuck McGathy. I normally have a podcast every week that uh, presents the worship sermon from the coming Sunday. Uh, Last week I was not here. Uh, That was because last Sunday we had a very special event. It was the second Sunday of Lent, but it was also the opportunity for us to ordain one of our members, Katie Garcia, to the gospel ministry. And uh, so we had the joy of that service last week, which was an unusual uh, opportunity that we had. Uh, And so the color of the church changed from purple to red in honor of ordination. But this week is the third Sunday of Lent, and we are back once again to purple. Purple is the color of Lent. Purple reminds us of both the pain and the suffering leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. We also recall the suffering of all humanity and the pain of the world under sin. But purple is also the color of royalty, so it reminds us of Jesus' resurrection and hope of newness that is Easter Sunday. Today's message is called His Ways, and the focal passage is from Isaiah, the 55th chapter, verses 1 through 9. Before I move into commentary about our scripture from Isaiah, I'd like to express... I'd like to say that along with you, I am deeply concerned about the world events playing out before us. War is horrible business. Robert E. Lee once said, it is well that war is so terrible, otherwise we should grow too fond of it. And yet we live in a fallen world, a world in which some have indeed grown too fond of war. And when that happens, as it has now done, untold multitudes suffer. We as Christ followers can do something. First, we can pray. Pray for all involved, to both friend and foe. We do not call down destruction, but pray for redemption and reconciliation. We believe in and hope for a just peace. Secondly, we must deal in truth. Make an effort to learn the facts. Think for yourself. Use honesty to describe what is happening clearly and plainly, and encourage others to do the same. Remember, the truth will make us free. Finally, take initiative. Can you give to help those affected by an unprovoked invasion? Can you speak a word of comfort and care to someone who is afraid the end of the world has come? Remember the words of Jesus. You have heard of war and rumors of war, but the end has not yet come. God is with us. The Holy Spirit will care for us. The Lord will return when we least expect it. We do not and cannot know the hour, so focus on his work of reconciliation all the time. This Sunday is the third Sunday in Lent. During the season of Lent, we are invited by the Spirit of God and the tradition of the church to take a personal inventory. This kind of inventory is not our opportunity to find the faults of others. Rather, it is our task to look inward and find the paths that can lead us toward a repentant and righteous faith. This is personal, and it is on us that our scriptures this day are focused. Of the scriptures, for consideration this week, scholars have selected Psalm 63. This song begins with these words, demonstrating the nearness and availability of our God. O God, you are my God. I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Another passage from the scriptures comes from the letter of Paul to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul offers this challenging and personal word to believers. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing he will provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. What an encouraging word by the apostle. In it, he reveals something about God, the God we worship. Unlike the deities described in some other religions, God is on our side. He is involved with us and wants us to grow stronger and more capable and ultimately experience a greater degree of peace and happiness through those things that now cause us trouble. Because of this, we may actually view the difficulties we endure and overcome as God's way of caring for us as a loving parent. The gospel selection for this week's comes out of the 13th chapter of Luke, once again Jesus is employing a bit of corrective theology. Here Jesus is trying to explain that God does not send tragedy upon people in retribution for secret sins. The people of his day speculated that this was indeed the case when the Romans slaughtered some Galileans and when a tower fell and crushed 18 people. I actually heard one famous preacher say God had made Putin send troops into neighboring Ukraine in order to accomplish his will. But then as now, the teaching of Jesus is quite different. God does not send wars or Roman soldiers or fallen towers on his people. Jesus made it clear that they did not suffer these horrible fates because of their sinfulness, yet he reinforces the idea that we are all sinful and everyone must repent of their sin. In each of these passages, we are reminded of God's intimacy, his involvement with us, and our need to acknowledge our shortcomings and find a new way to think and to live. This is not easy. As one of my dear friends once said to me, being a Christian isn't easy. He's right. It is not easy to follow in the way of Christ, but the alternative is a treacherous path that leads to alienation, sorrow, bitterness, and spiritual death. With that in mind, let's look at the last passage of Scripture selected for this week. I would like us to consider the words of the prophet Isaiah. From Isaiah, the 55th chapter, the words are deeply meaningful to me. Perhaps you'll find them equally as meaningful. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that do not know and nations that do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In our modern age, I think we may be tempted to read this passage from Isaiah with a bit of a cocked eye. We are skeptical, you see, about the wisdom of the ancient people regarding God. We are tempted to think that in our modern and technological age, we have advanced beyond the need to admit our limitations. We may even believe that our thoughts and our ways are a great improvement upon humanity. The evidence, however, would argue differently. Simply because we have advanced in our technology and understanding the mechanics of our world, we must still be humble enough to admit there is much we do not understand. There are some things that we cannot quite fathom as we ponder our past, present, and future as human beings upon this spinning satellite of the sun. Those ancient people also thought that they had all the answers. It was to them that Isaiah wrote this passage of Scripture. He wanted to remind the people of his day that they needed to abstain from the arrogance that claims more knowledge than it ought, that proposes it understands more fully than it really can. He wants his readers to admit their limitations and to look toward an unlimited God with trust and dependence. That message was controversial in Isaiah's time, and you can bet it's a problem right now. There is just something about our nature, something that hasn't changed with time, something that fights against the idea that we are not God. It is a temptation as old as the Garden of Eden. Remember the temptation of the Garden Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That was a temptation aimed at the human heart and the prideful nature that proclaims, I do not need to listen to God. It argues that God is, in fact, unnecessary. The way of following Jesus is different. It listens to God. It does not put God to the test. It does this by thinking and doing that which is at times contrary to our human natures. Our humanity argues for our defense. Our humanity argues that our way is the best. Our humanity argues that our knowledge is complete. The Bible, however, from cover to cover says something else. It tells the story of human beings in relationship with God. That relationship is imperfect and human knowledge incomplete. All humanity needed to depend upon God in a way that he could guide them in spite of the limitations of their humanity. Throughout human history, God sheds his light. In Christ, we can experience a new relationship with God. Through time, our knowledge increases, and this is God's gift to us. It often doesn't come without a struggle. The people during biblical times believed that the earth was flat. Their conception was that the earth was shaped like a turtle, a flat surface covered by an arched dome. In the biblical writings, there is evidence of this expressed through such common expressions as, the sun is rising and the sun is setting. We know that the sun does not rise in reality, neither does it set. It is the earth that revolves around the sun while at the same time spinning on its axis. Now, I don't know if you have ever thought of this before, but the ancient authors of scriptures got this bit of science wrong. This does not, however, affect the teaching of the Bible. The truth that God communicated through the pages of Scripture through the people he had chosen as vessels to proclaim his message to the world is not dependent upon every scriptural detail regarding science. In this case, the observation of the planetary movements is inaccurate. But the message of redemption is without error. Science isn't the point. The point is that God knows things that we do not know. Some of the things that we think we know, we may need to ponder anew as we learn more about our world. Let me go on with another example. The Hebrew people who left Egypt eventually rejected the idea of an afterlife, at least the afterlife as described in Egyptian religion. It was also a hot debate in Jesus' day that there was indeed a place of eternal life. One side of the debate was represented by the party of the Sadducees. They argued that because they could not identify a clear description of heaven from the writings of the Torah, that therefore it did not exist. But there was another side to this line of reasoning. It was the argument made throughout scriptures, including the Torah as, and the prophets as well. From this, other scriptural scholars, represented by the party of the Pharisees, concluded that there was indeed a place called heaven. It was to this very debate that Jesus presented evidence from the Torah supporting the idea of the eternal nature of the human soul. He confounded the reasoning of the Sadducees by quoting God who said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. This passage of scripture, by the way, points out a very interesting theological detail that was not lost upon his hearers. The word am is used and not the word was. Jesus does not quote, I was the God of Abraham as if Abraham is no more. Instead, he says, I am the God of Abraham. Even though Abraham no longer walks the earth, his existence is not obliterated. In fact, it is magnified in God's presence. And Isaiah spoke for God when he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. The Bible is a living book. It is meant to be read and interacted with by people throughout the ages it is written to us just as it was written to the people who first re- who first received it what is different is the knowledge that we have gained through time and through reading the entirety of the bible revelation our tradition and faith as a people who follow christ should also inform us as we read let me put that another way the author of genesis understood God in a remarkable way for the time in which he lived. He was, however, limited, influenced, and reacting to the teachings of the religion of his day. And that religion was the religion of the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped many gods. By that time in Egyptian religious history, even the worship of the Pharaoh as a god was well entrenched. The animal representation of the Egyptian king was the calf of a bull. This is important to note because the way the events are described that lead to the escape of the Israelites from the bondage of Egyptian slavery include this observation. And God hardened the heart of Pharaoh because of his stubbornness and refusal to comply with the words of Moses who demanded, let my people go. The ancient theologian concluded that God was more powerful than Pharaoh and all the Egyptian gods, and thus he controlled their destiny. It was a statement of true authority and power. From it have arisen ideas that are still hotly discussed among Christians to this day. It has to do with understanding the will of God. Does God elect some for salvation and others for damnation? The Apostle Peter, it seems, would argue against this. He wrote, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Once again, our thoughts, our ways are tempted by the light of scriptures. So, in both science and in developing theology, we learn more about God and more about ourselves if we are willing to think. An encyclopedic reference tells us, Nicholas Copernicus was a Renaissance-era mathematician and astronomer who formulated a model for the universe that placed the sun rather than the earth at the center of the universe. Uh, Before we get past that fact too quickly, just think for a moment about exactly what that meant. For proposing his theory, Copernicus was made the villain by the church of his day. Even though many of the theologians within the church secretly suspected he might be right, few dared speak in his behalf. Copernicus was excorated for promoting heresy. Years later, however, The church came to recognize that the truth of his word shed light scientifically and were in no way a threat to the truth of the Bible or of the religion derived from it. This lesson from history ought to instruct us today when we encounter those who are honest scientists, even Christian scientists, who propose some ideas that are new but are also true. And again, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. One of those ideas concerns the age of the earth. Surveys reveal that the majority of Christians still struggle with the concept that the earth is very old, this despite the abundant evidence that the age of the earth far exceeds 6,000 years. The persistent belief that the earth can only be 6,000 years old makes it uncomfortable for Christian young people who attend college. This belief makes it difficult for parents to take their children to natural science museums where the age of the universe is considered in the billions of years. Even watching nature shows on television becomes a difficulty for those who insist that the earth can only be 6,000 years old. Now, people who hold to that belief will often tell you that this is what the Bible teaches. It is not. Let me say that once more. The Bible at no point teaches that the earth's age is 6,000 years or anything close to it. That idea comes from the miscalculations of James Usher, the bishop of Armagh and primate of all Ireland. He reasoned in the 17th century that you could determine the exact age of the earth by counting up the genealogical entries recorded in the scriptures. His method was sincere but flawed. In case you are wondering, he determined through his math that the world was created on October 23rd, 4004 BC, about dinner time to be exact. Now, if this sounds odd, and I hope it does, it is because we now realize from both Scripture and science that the world is much older. Great conservative biblical scholars such as Baptist B.B. B. Warfield argued that Usher and others employing such calculations failed to account for the undetermined time gaps presented in the Bible, the first being between verses 2 and 3 of Genesis, chapter 1. My thoughts, says God, are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. We are fortunate to be living in an age when great advances are being made in the areas of medicine, psychology, and the understanding of human sexuality. This is a gift to us. Had the ancient people had the same knowledge available to them that we have available to us, I am sure that the Bible would have reflected that. As it is, the Bible tells the story of redemption, and as it does, it does so by incorporating the best knowledge of the day. It makes sense, then, that if we are to follow in that example, we will also embrace all of the learning that God has given to us and do so with open and agile minds. One excellent example of this is the advances that have been made in the area of understanding, diagnosing, and treating mental illness. The understanding of mental illnesses and their causes were largely unknown until the beginning of the 20th century. Prior to that time, those suffering from mental illnesses were typically described as demon-possessed. We still have so much to learn. For instance, only recently have scientists determined that autism is not caused by motherly neglect. And regarding human sexuality, most Christians who work in medical research are now convinced that sexual orientation is not a matter of environment or personal choice, but a result of a genetic code that makes a person a unique human being. We can and have, Gotten many things wrong, yet throughout human history, God is with us. God is with his people always. When we look more closely at his revelation, we discover that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are still learning about our world and about ourselves. If we claim we understand perfectly, we contradict the words of Paul, who wrote, We see through a glass darkly. To agree with Paul, we must approach our understanding of faith with both humility and an open mind available to the new lessons God can teach us. We can and must trust God to guide us even if we believe the earth is flat, that there is no heaven, that he hardens people against him, that the universe revolves around the sun, that creation is 6,000 years old, that plant and animal life have never changed or adapted based on environmental need, that mental illness is caused by demons or autism is caused by a defect in mothering. In every one of these cases and more, God is calling us to think. God is calling us to remember that his ways and his thoughts are bigger than ours, and we must be willing to listen if we're going to be his faithful disciples in the 21st century. We learn from history of our religion that we have been known to get it wrong. That is why the Bible says, my ways are not your ways. There is a humility and wonder packed into that expression. We are called to openness and love. It's not just about what we do in our world. It is about what we believe. It is about what we think. We should therefore always be wondering, always discovering We should embrace science, psychology, and learning as God's good gifts to us. And as we learn, we will discover that he has been with us all along. He is a God of grace. His love and desire to redeem us has been his constant theme. So please watch the best nature shows. Go to the museums. Read the recent observations of psychology and sociology. Mostly think. This is how God made us to be. This is his way. The great Anglican theologian John Stott wrote a book that was published while I was still in high school. It is entitled, Your Mind Matters. In that book, he reflects on the statement by James Orr who said, A religion divorced from earnest and lofty thought has always, down the whole history of the church, tended to become weak, naive, and unwholesome, while the intellect deprived of its rights within religion, has sought its satisfaction without and developed into godless rationalism. To add to that thought, Stott writes this commentary, Some people, to be sure, have reached the opposite conclusion. Since man is finite and fallen, they argue, since he cannot discover God by his intellect and God must reveal himself, therefore the mind is unimportant. But no, the Christian doctrine of revelation, far from making the human mind unnecessary, actually makes it indispensable and assigns to it its proper place. God has revealed himself in words to minds. His revelation is a rational revelation to rational creatures. Our duty is to receive his message, to submit to it, to seek to understand it, and to be related to the world in which we live. I venture to say... That when we fail to use our minds and descend to the level of animals, God addresses us as he addresses Job when he found him wallowing in self-pity, follow in folly, and bitter complaining. Gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you shall declare to me. I think we live in the best time of all the times in all the history of the world to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have been given great gifts, we have been given great opportunities, and we have been given great challenges to present the gospel of love and reunification with God to the entire world. Let us do so. Let us follow his ways. Shall we pray? O God, we thank you for the wonderful gifts that you have given humanity. We recognize that there is still so much for us to learn about your world, about the nature you created, about one another. Keep our minds alive. Keep our thoughts focused on you. May we learn your ways so that our world may see the beauty of the gospel, the good news of God's way. Walk with us as we learn to follow you more closely. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.